the Mishcon Academy Digital Sessions. Conversations on the legal topics affecting businesses and individuals today. In this episode, what are the upcoming changes to capital gains tax and what impact will they have on divorce? When is a good time for family lawyers to think about tax and financial planning on divorce? And what other planning opportunities might a divorce present? Hello and welcome to this Mishcon Academy Digital Sessions podcast. I'm Annie Bouch, an associate in the tax and wealth planning team at Mishcon Dorea, and I'm joined by my colleague Antonia Felix, a partner in the family team. And we are talking with Ben Glassman and Chris Springett at Evelyn Partners. Ben is a financial planning partner and heads the family and divorce team at Evelyn Partners and Chris is a partner in the private client team at Evelyn where he specialises in capital gains tax. So I think the best place to start is what really are the current capital gains tax rules for married couples and civil partners on divorce? Chris, could you tell us more? Yeah, thanks, Annie. I think it's fair to say that it often comes as a surprise to couples on divorce that tax does need to be considered. People are often aware that Transfers between a husband and a wife don't attract tax, but are unaware that this is due to a specific set of rules that have certain conditions that need to apply. A transfer between spouses takes place at something called no gain, no loss for capital gains tax purposes. This means that no tax is crystallized on the transfer and the receiving spouse effectively takes the the other spouse's base cost. However, this special rule for spouses only applies up to the end of the tax year of permanent separation. So, for example, if you were to separate in December, you'd only have till the 5th of April to make use of that spouse exemption before it falls away. As a family lawyer, we find that people come in, obviously, they don't think about tax when they separate and they come to see us at different times in the tax year. And sometimes that means they don't benefit from that no gain, no loss CGT treatment, which is often a shame. That's really frustrating. I can imagine they come to you on the 1st of April. You're thinking, great, we have four days, but you can't really control what you're doing there. But actually, the the government are introducing new proposals from April 2023 that extend the no gain, no loss treatment. So currently, as Chris mentioned, where a divorcing couple can only benefit during the tax year of separation, this is being extended to the earlier of divorce or three years following the end of the tax year of separation. So really, no longer are couples that separate towards the end of the tax year disadvantaged in comparison to couples separating at the start of the tax year, which I think is probably a welcomed news for a family lawyer. Definitely it is. Has this happened to you guys and you've had, you know, couples come in and you're, you know, you're thinking, actually, we haven't got the time here or there is significant tax that's, that's going to end up being paid here because they've just got divorced at the wrong time of the year. Yes, exactly. And that's when we work with Annie's team to try and work out the best way of dealing with it. So are you potentially deferring that settlement as a result? Just trying to, if it's close enough, you say, look, you might want to wait here, you know, two, three months. Exactly. It depends where they are because some people don't want to plan their life via tax. Understandably. Yeah. So they'll just say, well, that's fine, understood, but we're going to, you know, carry on. And others will, yeah, will definitely defer the negotiations and wait even by a couple of weeks because of the dates. Yeah, that seems fine where it's a couple of weeks, but where it's like several months, it seems ridiculous. So presumably this is really welcome that the government are looking to make these changes then? Absolutely. And I think what's really important at the moment is that we're actually in a transitional period. So if we have a couple that separated in 2021-22, so that's between 6th of April 21 and 5th of April 22, they are currently the current rules that Chris explained. So they are now past their tax year of separation. So if they transferred assets now, 
that would be deemed to be at market value and there could be a a tax crystallizing depending on what the asset is. So it's really, really important to get advice because we would be saying to that type of divorcing couple, actually, hang on, hang on until these new rules come in in April 2023, because there could be some planning opportunities Mm -hmm. here. But likewise, if you have a couple that are in the current tax year of separation, so since 6th of April 2022, the benefit for Antonia's team is that we're going to reach 5th of April 2023 and there won't be this huge rush to try and obtain this no gain, no loss treatment because we can say to divorcing couples, actually, look, you will benefit from this extended period. So I do think that there is a lot of planning that needs to be had, but actually this is welcome news and it's just we need to take a step back and think, okay, when has this separation occurred because we need to look at the current and new rules. I think alongside the changes to no gain, no loss, there's also some changes to the main residence relief from capital gains tax that's probably also worth noting and hopefully, again, helpful for Antonia's team. So as people might be aware, the family home is exempt from capital gains tax, but again, it's under a set of specific rules rather than just a a general allowance. The specific rules cover certain periods of absence from the property and, and one of those is on divorce, but it's actually quite limited in that it only really applies. So you only get that exemption when you transfer the property to the remaining spouse. So if you're the spouse that's moved out, transfer the property to the spouse that's remained in the property, then you can qualify for some extensions to the private residence relief rules. Under the new rules that will be introduced again from 6th of April 23, you'll actually be eligible for private residence relief on a sale to a third party if that is part of a, a divorce settlement. You might need to consider whether it's worthwhile for you to do that. So if you've acquired another property, it might not be in your best interest to claim it on the former matrimonial home. But as I say, it gives you that flexibility that perhaps isn't currently present in the existing system. So again, more changes coming through that are hopefully helpful for Antonia and her team. Definitely. It just gives people more breathing space rather than thinking they've only got a short window to make the decisions. And it often means that people end up implementing an agreement before it's gone into a court order because they want to make the timings work for them. But I think with these new rules, the immediate reaction is great. We get no gain, no loss for a much longer period. But actually, that doesn't mean there's no tax to pay. It just means that that tax charge is potentially being crystallized unless PPR perhaps applies. So I think I would say when family lawyers are looking at sort of the divorce and financial negotiations, actually the recipient party who's receiving the asset They really want to be thinking about some sort of tax indemnity or knowing that the dry tax charge that that could apply at a later date and getting that built in now because it it could be too late in the future. Yeah, and it's helping them understand that there will be a tax charge because so often they think, oh, fine, I'm getting it tax free. And they don't understand that at some stage there will be a penalty to pay. A quick question for you, Chris. Look, we're in this environment where interest rates are obviously rising and looks like house prices are coming off. How is that going to impact divorcing couples with the potential change of legislation? Yeah, that's interesting, Ben, actually, because you know, we, we think about needing to protect the assets from capital gains tax. But you're right, if there's no gain to start with, then that also adds some flexibility around how people might deal with a financial settlement on divorce. There's lots of good ideas out there around ways to protect either party in that divorce and allow them access to those assets and the value of those assets over time. I'm thinking things such as a trust structure or things such as even a deferred charge. So you transfer the property now, but you take a charge over the future sale proceeds. 
all of those bring with them tax consequences and issues to consider, but actually could give you a really good result, particularly if the tax is such that the gain isn't there to start with. So I think it opens up a lot of opportunities to plan actually for the right settlement rather than just a tax efficient one. It's interesting as then we've spoken a lot about capital gains tax and timing on divorce. And during divorce, a client might not be thinking, oh, I should update my will. But absolutely, I always say to Antonia and her family team that when you're going through a divorce, actually updating your will, your testamentary documents is absolutely the time to be doing this. Because like with CGT, the rules change on divorce, the same is with inheritance tax. And so you want to be looking to ensuring that you have a tax efficient will as possible and also build in the provisions that you've planned for during the financial negotiations on divorce. But that got me thinking, Ben, when should the parties be considering financial planning in the context of divorce? I mean, just like you guys, we find that separating clients often come to us quite late in the process. So as planners or tax advisors, we tend to get involved or invited to get involved when something's gone wrong or something seems a bit complicated or how do we, how do we untangle this particular issue? Some of the most effective planning can be undertaken much earlier in the process. So as an example, in the bit that I, I often talk about, I mean, divorce is one of the only times that pensions are able to be shared. The only other time really is, is sort of on death. So it's only a, you know, it's a byproduct of the divorce process that you can actually share debit or credit pension assets from one party to another. And why can that be useful? Well, pensions are a really useful tax structure in particular. And the current legislation on certain types of pensions are that they're outside of the estate for inheritance tax purposes. And so when we're thinking about generating an income in retirement, perversely, we tend to avoid spending pension assets. It's actually the pensions that you spend last rather than the ones that you spend first, because anything left within the pension can be passed on to future generations free of any inheritance tax. And with all these really you know, good benefits associated with pensions, there are limits on what one can put in to a pension. So if there are couples with large, large pensions as part of the matrimonial estate, and one party has limited resources, there are joint benefits of sharing those, those assets between them. Not only can you reduce these, these horrible lifetime allowance tax charges, because effectively now you've got two allowances rather than one, you can also remove assets from the estate. So it's two sets of tax charges just by thinking strategically. But very often, the opposite takes place. You know, it's one party might prefer to keep the house and the other party you know, might want to keep their pension. And this is really dangerous as a pension can be undervalued relative to the value of a, of a pension, particularly if it's a final salary pension or a civil service pension. I mean, what about you guys? Antonio, do you find that, that one party in the divorce is, is more wedded to the property over their pension? I do, yeah. So often, and I'm stereotyping here, but it is the female in the relationship who possibly wants to keep the family home because maybe they've got children and they think that it will be more settling for the children to stay in the family home a bit longer, or they just feel more wedded to the property. And so often they come and they say, well, if I keep the property, he can keep the pension. But I think where it's really important to work with people like Ben in the early stages is because women often have less in their pension pot for lots of different reasons, which would be a whole different podcast. But there's the gender pay gap. And often women will take longer maternity leaves or parental leave and come back working part time. So over the years, they would have contributed less to their pension. So often on divorce, their pot is lower 
And I think psychologically for a woman, they'll think, oh, well, I'll keep more of the cash from the equity and the property and take less pension. But as you've just said, there's a lot more to think about beyond that. And also women have a longer life expectancy. They might be younger than their husband. So when you're looking at a settlement, you have to be really careful at looking at all of those different contributing factors to see actually what the outcome will be for them. And often the pension just feels alien compared to a property. It's not tangible. Exactly. The irony is, is that if you're living in a property, you can't spend it. You know, there's no income for that individual. And they're often really misvalued. So having a pension on divorce expert within those early stages of divorce can identify what the value is, the true value here, and what one's giving up. Exactly. But even with the state pension, for example, women often haven't made enough national insurance contributions if they've worked part time. And even, you know, part of the process is to find out what top up might be needed, which then feeds into the calculations. And often they don't even know that's the the situation. Yeah, really good point. It's a really good return to make those top ups because you've got, you know, triple lock on pensions and it looks like everyone's going to be getting an inflation increase this year. So making a small contribution to have that guaranteed secured income increasing with inflation is hugely valuable. And the other point that I'd make is that when you're looking at matrimonial assets, the offsetting of a pension that might have a value, a nominal value of a million pounds versus a property with a nominal value of a million pounds, they are not the same thing. You can't spend your property in any case. But the valuation on a pension may be significantly undervalued just because of how it's reported. So a civil service pension may be you know, valued at a million pounds. But to purchase the same level of income on the open market, you might need three million pounds worth of, of assets. So having someone in the room working on your side of the table to give some counsel as to what the real value here can be hugely beneficial. Yeah, and I think that's exactly what we try to do with the client early on just so they can understand everything. Antonia, it's interesting. I think a lot of these conversations aren't perhaps ones you'd expect a family lawyer to be having with their clients. Do you think your role's been changing over the years? I do. I mean, yeah, 10 years ago, I think people associated a family lawyer with just divorce. And I think we've moved on from that in that, of course, people are always going to get divorced or separated. And that's where a family lawyer comes in. But I think it's also now from a protection point of view, looking at rather than always being after the event or distressed purchase, we come in more in the planning stage to work with a family. And that comes into being the life cycle of a family, not just when they're adults, but if they have children or helping them build their family, then during the course of their life, they will require advice at different stages. And I think that's where a family lawyer can come in. But yes, I think it's less just divorce and more about protecting and helping them plan and also supporting them in kind of key moments in their life. And so what about the emotional support that you guys give during that process? Is, is there more of that now or is that something that's looking to be outsourced to other parties? So we definitely outsource to therapists. And I think that's really important at the outset for clients to be given the advice if they're not already seeing a therapist or a counsellor to seek that help because they don't want to pay for us but unqualified therapeutic advice but obviously you do learn over the years in this role how people react in certain situations so we definitely support them but mainly the emotional support would be from a therapist as part of the process or from their family members and friends rather than us 
but definitely you know that that's the relationship like you that you build with your client and you get to know them and hopefully that helps you support them along their journey that's interesting on support antonia naturally that flows to longer term planning and estate planning inheritance tax anything worth thinking through the pension there yeah i mean i think this point that i was making earlier defined contribution pensions currently under legislation are outside of the estate for inheritance tax purposes and it throws up all these really interesting opportunities which can only happen on divorce so someone that has a pension in payment an annuity or a final salary scheme if they credit their spouse with their pensions those assets move outside of the estate that increases the opportunity for that partner to spend money but for assets to be passed on to their beneficiaries of the joint estate And so this isn't going to happen in all circumstances, but couples that come together to try and think about how they can mitigate tax for the benefit of their children or beneficiaries of their estate can come up with some really interesting and significant savings from inheritance tax perspective. We've looked at lots of cases where those figures, you know, it's not, they're not incidental. You may be talking several millions of pounds just by thinking strategically about what each party may need during their lifetimes and what is surplus to requirements. And we often do have those discussions with clients if they've got children or later in life, you know, they've worked hard to save. They do want to try to pass it on in the most tax efficient way and to be creative with it, particularly if they're not going through the court and they're reaching an agreement themselves, then essentially you can be as creative as you want to be. I think this is right. If there are individuals that are looking, you know, to separate on the best terms for the benefit of their you know, whether they're trying to co-parent in an effective manner or just, you know, they're more elderly, the silver separators, that actually, you know, it's time that they sort of, individuals are grown apart, but they can make plans during their divorce process that may have significant impacts for the benefit of their, of their joint estates. That can be really powerful. I think that's especially key where they have children from that marriage, because It may well be that one party or both parties go on and remarry and have more children and they want that their assets created from the joint estate Mm. to be preserved for their their joint children. And so there's definitely a bigger piece there with wills, estate planning combined with the pension. It's important to work together there. Absolutely. And you can see why creation of trust, the completion of a will at that point is so, so vital without doubt. And working together with advisors and knowing that both sides have that advice, because as I say, the court can't make within the context of family proceedings, they can't make one party leave money to someone else because obviously people change their minds and that's down to them. But encouraging them to think about future generations or beyond the divorce is obviously something that's really helpful for lots of reasons, as you say, to keep the relationship going if they've got children and they're co-parenting or just to leave on good terms. And I guess the courts aren't interested if, if there are opportunities to save lots of tax or mitigate funds for the beneficiary of the state. The court doesn't really care about that in any way. So it's only down to the individuals and the advisors that they're getting together that these opportunities can be executed. Exactly. If you reach an agreement that happens to be tax efficient, the court, it will be approved if it's fair and reasonable and you know meets all the criteria. But no, the judge isn't going to be thinking about that. You work from net figures. So you have all the, the calculations there and those are the figures they work from. Yeah. We often find that separating couples are concerned how their lifestyle might be impacted by the divorce and whether they will have enough to live off. How can a financial planner help there? It's a great question. I think it's first and foremost what a financial planner can do is they can understand where you are today, where you may be post-settlement and 
give an indication of what the financial trajectory for that individual will look like. I'm sure you may have heard of cash flow modeling or um, cash flow, which can produce these future trajectories to say whether an individual is going to run out of money, whether there's going to be a big estate left over, whether they're spending too much or whatever it might, might be a requirement to go back to work. What it does, it provides clarity over an individual's financial future. And it may also reduce resentment of the other. If someone is walking away knowing that they've got the resources they need to meet their spending, they're going to feel a lot more likely to agree to a particular settlement. Now, invariably, that isn't always what happens. But what it can then do, if there isn't sufficient resources, it can show what compromises need to be made or to assist in negotiations. And that's where it can be really valuable when working with professional parties, with an individual's lawyers, to be able to say, look, this settlement is not sufficient to meet my client's long-term spending needs, but actually this number might be more, more suitable. I'm not saying that the other party is going to agree, but it does give some context to actually what a settlement could look like and how best you might want to put it together. And I'm sure we'll make the other side consider the proposal more seriously if actually you had proper advice and can show the figures to support the required amounts. Exactly. I always say to clients, knowledge is power. So that if you know what you need, it's less likely, well, you will be challenged for sure, but at least you can come back and say, no, I've been through it. I know what I need. And it's also a bit, you know, it's such an important life event and to actually look at what you spend. Most of us spend our life not wanting to know what we're spending and how much, and then suddenly it's in front of them. But in a way, it helps them move forward on an informed basis. So great starting point for that longer term piece as well, isn't it? That estate planning, understanding what requirements are today allows you to then plan for the future. Yeah, it's, it's great empowerment, particularly if there's asymmetries in financial knowledge. One party invariably the husband has taken control of the financial affairs and a settlement is being awarded, you know, misogynistically to the spouse who has less, less knowledge and less experience. It can be quite overwhelming. And to be able to take control and see what one's future looks like, you're able to turn over a new page and take control of your future. And a lot of the role of a planner is to empower, provide that context And think about how things do get structured, the type of income, the type of lifestyle that individual may have post-settlement. And will you continue to work with that individual on a sort of a yearly basis or is it a one-off engagement? How does it work? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's, you know, we'd love to work with clients for like yourselves to work with them for 10 years, 20 years, whatever it might be, building long-term relationships where a plan is just the starting point but it needs to be reviewed and updated each year, depending on circumstances. Because as we know, things change very easily. And having a plan that's flexible enough to adapt to that is really valuable. There's a question I was going to ask, you know, when you're going into divorce proceedings, the temptation is to think of every spending, you know, every spend that someone might have. And I've seen, you know, the budget planners and formies where, um, you know, the spending is they call it deluxebury requests. And it's kind of like the spending levels are just yeah, so like large here. Rather than, yeah. And then what's a challenge for me is then when I meet a client and they've had that spend in mind and I say, look, it's just not going to be realistic. You're going to be able to spend at that level. And then there's this, this new budget plan you have to do. You've got to say, well, actually, what do you need and what don't you need? And I just want to get your thoughts in terms of, presumably you're trying to increase the value of the spend, but in reality, 
Is that not really what, a, what an individual is looking to spend? No. So we really want it to be realistic because you've always got to have one eye on the fact you might be in court. Hopefully you won't be, but that's when you will be asked questions about your budget. So it has to be either based on your spending during the marriage or a future budget or a sort of slight mesh of the two. And it can be quite tricky, as you say, because if you give a client a budget to look at and it has all the things that you think they might be spending, you have some clients say they need to spend £7,000 a year on flowers when they've never actually had flowers. So it almost encourages them to think, oh, yeah, I wouldn't mind doing that. So it is a real balance of being realistic and trying to think about what might happen. Like, So if you're going to size down and have a smaller house, then your utility bills will be lower. But also you have to show that you did have higher ones. So potentially it's affordable in the future for the budget to be slightly higher. So there is no magic to it, which is why it's obviously really helpful to have the input of the tools that you can have. And then the family lawyers have to work through it with the client and it can take hours and hours to do. That's it. It's not necessarily a wish list, but it's kind of like, I would like, I'd like to be having, you know, buying flowers every week or whatever it might be. And I'd like to have the garden done or whatever it is. These are all things that you would like to do, whether or not it happened or not. Yeah. But the judge, when looking at it, will have a feel for what a family of four, five, six will be spending in certain areas. And, you know, those are the first type of things, the luxury items that go if you need to reduce the budget. So sometimes it's better not to start too high because it just looks so unrealistic, which is why I always say try to start from what you're actually spending. And really, if you can go through the last 12 months of your bank statements, which is obviously a fairly dull task for most clients to do, but then you really do get a sense of what you've been spending. From my perspective, that being as accurate as possible is the most important, that that underpins the plan really, like trying to work out what actually does lifestyle look like and then understanding other resources there, is there a way of structuring the resources to meet that spend? Historically, what I've found is that those numbers tend to be overestimated and the, particularly the capitalized settlement as a result of a calculation, maybe through Duxbury, is not sufficient to meet that spend. No. And that's why I think you do have to be, as a family lawyer, realistic with your client. And that's why it helps them to understand the figures and the calculations, because otherwise, if they get less than they expect, they walk away worrying about how they're going to pay for things in the future. Whereas if they've had that support the whole way through, then they understand more how they're going to live. And it's also quite a good time because people say, oh, I'd like to put money into my pension, for example, but they haven't been previously. So you can kind of work with them on the budget to see what they might be able to cut in order to then make those contributions in the future. Really good. Well, that seems like a good time to wrap up. I'd like to say thanks so much to Ben and Chris for joining myself and Annie for this Michigan Academy Digital Sessions podcast. So thank you both. Yeah, thanks, Antonia. Yeah, it's been really interesting. Thank you. I'm Antonia Felix, and the Digital Sessions are a series of online events, videos, and podcasts, all available at mishcon.com. And if you have any questions you'd like answered or suggestions of what you'd like us to cover, do let us know at digitalsessions at mishcon.com. The Mishcon Academy Digital Sessions. To access advice for businesses that is regularly updated, please visit mishcon.com.